This episode is brought to you by Great Waters Financial. I didn't know what I was doing. I was writing something for my kids. I'm saying to my kids, let me tell you about the God who actually showed up and healed my heart. William Paul Young, author of The Shack, joins us on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Well, hello and welcome to the next episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. I'm Larry Gates. I'm here with my co-host, Armin Asadi. And we're so glad you're here and able to join us on this extra special, super-packed, oversized uh, edition of the Bold (laughs) Idea Podcast. That's right. This podcast is going to be a lot longer than any of our other ones, but I can't tell you this enough that this is going to be worth every minute, if not every second of your time. It's that good. We have quite a treat here for our guests today because this is a man we've both been looking forward to talking to and has had quite an impact not only on our own learning and discovery, but with millions around the world. Yeah. I mean, personal impact is what resonates with me the most, but yeah, around the world and what a treat, what an honor to be able to have him right now. Yeah. Well, welcome Paul Young to the Bold Idea Podcast. Thank you, and I'm honored to be with you, honored to participate, so appreciate the invitation. Well, you have been quite a busy guy lately because we know you have a new movie coming out on the 3rd of March. Now, this episode will come out after that, and then you have a new book, The Lies We Believe About God, coming out on March the 7th, and a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, and in between that, on March 5th, is a TBN series starts on The Shack Restored, and it's just... I shot it last summer in Montana, and it's beautifully done. And it is just walking through the impact of the different parts of the shack and wow. and what it means. So that's all, that's all coming. Wow! And so a uh, big wave, a big wave. <laughs> you just kind of just keep your head up and grab something. Yeah, you have to grab <laughs> anything that's nearby. I bet because this is a quite a journey you've been on. And I talked to our mutual friend Wes Yoder, and he mentioned that on one day you had sixty four interviews. Yeah, that's when I when I discovered what a junket was. In fact, I discovered a whole bunch of things. But <laughs> but a junket is when a movie is coming out and they took over a floor of a hotel in Hollywood. And I was in one room. Octavia Spencer was in another room. And Tim McGraw was in one and Rada Mitchell, who plays Nan, was in another room. And then they just they cycled journalists from all over the world through so I did over 60 interviews in one day. They had four minutes with a one-minute turnaround, and it was absolutely remarkable. I come to find out that journalists don't get hugged very often. <laughs> <laughs> so they were a little surprised when you offered one, huh? <laughs> well, I didn't offer one. I just took one. Oh, great. And, uh, <laughs> every single journalist that came through got hugged. Oh, wow. And, and I think for some of them, it was the first time in days. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Wow. It was amazing. It I was love amazing. that about you, Paul, is that you have a reputation as a hugger. When I started asking about you, they said, if you meet him, be careful. He's a hugger. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I think everybody is way down deep. I oh, think yeah. all children totally. love to be hugged and something mm-hmm. happened, mm-hmm. you know, either became dangerous or something. Mm-hmm. And I think the world needs as many hugs as it can get, especially right now. 
Yeah, well, listen, we know how busy you are, and I just want to thank you again for taking the time to be with us on this program. It's absolutely great that you're able to do it. Now, you know, the Bold Idea Podcast is really here to inspire people to get outside their comfort zone and get a hold of an idea that God might be planning in their own lives and and running with it. And so I'd like to kind of go back to, well, I'm not sure this is the beginning for you, but certainly the world discovered you through the writing of The Shack. I'd like to hear a little bit about how did that idea come to you? I tell my folk, which are evangelical religious fundamentalists, those are my people. <laughs> and when, when they ask me this question, I always say, well, I was trying to do like the Bible says and submit to my wife. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and I say, it does say that, you know, it yep. says submit one to another and mm-hmm. she's one of the others. But Kim had been asking me for about four years and, and I'd always been a writer. Uh, writing was a way to, to get my inside world out. I learned to write by reading And reading was a way to get out of my world. And she liked what I wrote. So did my friends. And I wrote stuff for friends and family. Never once considered becoming a published author. So she said, you know, someday as a gift for our kids, and we have six children, the year I wrote The Shack, the youngest was 13. And she said, as a gift for our kids, you know, would you just put in one place how you think? Because you think outside the box. And I didn't feel healthy enough to do something like that until the year I turned 50. And on the train to one of my three jobs that I was holding down at the time, most of what I wrote was on yellow legal pads on the train because I had 40 minutes each way trying to get it done for Christmas. And I made 15 copies at Office Depot at Christmas. And those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. And I went back to work. Oh, by the way, when it eventually got put into published print actually it was a printer who did it because 26 publishers turned it down oh my goodness but when it eventually got there kim says to me you know when i asked you to do this i was thinking you know like four to six pages (laughs) (laughs) now just a minute ago you said she wanted you to write everything you knew and so now she's telling you it was in four to six pages (laughs) exactly and it was like for real you think i could put everything that i can think in four to six pages well i bet those 26 uh, publishers are kicking themselves right You know, a lot of them came back to visit. Um, (laughs) They did, but I didn't have any expectations of it being a book in the first place. So it was a whole adventure to me. And I didn't understand the publishing world, didn't understand the movie world for sure. And it was a really great learning curve. When the book first started becoming a conversation, the initial conversation was about turning it into a movie. Three guys in California who got a hold of the first manuscript, uh, first full novel manuscript that I wrote immediately started talking to me about turning it into a film. And I'm going like, it's not even like a for real book. <laughs> and so, so they said, well, you know, if we can, if we can get to the place where we sell a hundred thousand copies, then Hollywood will come talk to us about a movie. And, and I was so naive. I didn't know at the time that the average book only sells three to 5,000 copies its entire existence. Mm. That 100,000 is very rarefied air. In fact, if you write a novel and you sell 7,500 copies, you can put bestseller on it. Oh. I had no clue. So I'm thinking like, oh, 100,000. I mean, there's more people than that in Oregon. So. And now yeah. you're up to 22 million. Is that right? I know. How weird is that? Right? <laughs> so what do they call a bestseller? Let's see, 22 million divided by 7,500. <laughs> they... they 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 put it in the top 100 fiction bestsellers of all history. That's how strange it is. That's, and that's why I say it's really important. Two things I tell people. 
the first 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. So the rest of this is just God's grace and sense of humor. The other thing that I say is that I want people to understand that the things that matter to me, identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love, all of those things were in place before I wrote the book. So the book hasn't added any of that to me. What the book has done is that it gave me an invitation into the holy ground of other people's stories mm. in a way that I had never experienced before. And I will be eternally grateful for that. Yeah. So let's dive into that. And I just, I want to take the flip side of that because you said all those things were in place already before you wrote the book, but how did those things like community and family and your upbringing contribute to the ideas that you put into that book? What was some of the sources of your, your thinking that fueled your writing? Oh, that's a great big question. The sources are a whole bunch. You know, my journey to get to a place where I felt for the first time content in my own skin and it took me 50 years, you know, to believe that God was actually good all the time mm-hmm. and that I could I could take the risk of trust. And that, you know, all of that is embedded in my history. I'm you grow up in a way that you think that how you grow up is sort of normal. And then you start running into other people and you find out that it's kind of unusual and that there is no such thing as normal. I'm a missionary kid, grew up in the highlands of New Guinea. I was a year old when my parents moved into the highlands. I grew up in a tribal culture. In fact, I didn't consciously, I was not consciously aware of being white till I went to boarding school when I was six. Mm. And it was a huge disappointment. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm, I'm still a little ticked about it. And, <laughs> but that background gave me an ability to look from outside of the box, at least in the, the Western cultural box. And there are some beautiful things about growing up in a multicultural background, but I grew up with great sadnesses as well, not just because of some of the rigidness of my theological heritage, but also had a very difficult relationship with my father. And he was just an angry young man. And the more I've gotten to know his story and our family history, the more I know he had good reason to be very angry. But, you know, as a child, you don't know why your father is angry and you don't know why Mm. it feels like you can never live up to whatever the expectations. And living with my dad was like living in a in a world where everything was a minefield and mm. the mines got changed every night. So it was terrifying. And he was a very young, very rigid Christian man. And it took me 50 years, basically, to wipe the face of my father off the face of God. Mm. And so that's part of one of the streams. I experienced a significant amount of sexual abuse, both in the tribal culture and then in missionary boarding school. Mm. And that ripped the fabric of my soul to shreds. That's the basis for the shack. You know, it's, you can read it just as a story, but it's a parable and a metaphor. And the shack becomes the house on the inside, you know, that people helped us build. And yeah. it's the place where we got stuck mm. and where we then hid all of our addictions and kept all our secrets. And we never wanted anybody to come in there. So, You know, I shut myself down from relationship because I couldn't take the risk that if somebody found out the truth, at least the truth that I thought about who I was, that I would see in their face the look of disgust that I saw in the mirror. And I I wasn't willing to risk that. So it all became about performance. And I dragged all that stuff into my marriage and all this hiddenness and all the secrets and everything else. And thank God I married the wrath of God, which Kim is. 
which which I now <laughs> believe is is the love of God, uh-huh. you know, and it's it's a wrath that is it is a furious fire that I think every healthy parent knows with regard to their children. If your child is is inflicted with a disease or begins to believe a lie that does damage to them, don't you want to be a fiery fury and climb inside that thing and kill it and destroy it, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. not because I'm mad at my kids. I am furious at what would hurt them. Yeah. Mm. And I think that originates in God, but we're so ashamed of ourselves and so self-condemning that we think God looks at us the way we look at ourselves. And we end up with this distant omni-being who is opposed to us and who, who, who may love us because he has to, but doesn't like us. Yeah. That theme of, you haven't used this word yet, but it seems like, you know, what you're describing is this deep seated shame that we carry with us, that there's something totally unlovable about us. And it, it seems like that theme comes up in quite a few of the lies that we believe about God that you write about in your new book seem to be centered around that whole concept, right? Very much so. And I think because of those kinds of lies that we start on a premise that we can never transcend, we can't get away from it. We always fall back to a very low view of humanity, which impacts our view of Jesus. And then a very low, a very low view of God in many respects, God just becomes the you know, we plaster the face of God with our own darkness. So yeah, I, I think you're right. Shame and guilt are, are two very different things. They are. Guilt, yeah, guilt is legit. I mean, we hurt people. We do things that are wrong. We, we betray. And so guilt is, is true, and we've got to deal with it. But, but shame? Shame is not that I've done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. Mm-hmm. And if we get sucked down into that hole, which, frankly, some of our theology supports, sadly, Mm-hmm. then we've got nowhere to stand. And, you know, it's all just faking our way, hoping that we just fake it well enough to get inside the kingdom before, you know, before it all comes apart. So, Paul, I know you already touched on this and maybe you already answered this question, but I, I want to go back to it before we get too far away from it. Our mutual friend, Michelle Watson, ah, she yeah. specifically said to ask you about your dad and that relationship set one of the foundations of your book. And I know you already touched on it. And she even touched on it in our interview with her, where she said, my dad became God, the father figure to me. And I couldn't make that connection, though I could make a connection to Jesus Christ, though I could make a connection to the Holy Spirit. I could not make a connection to Father God. And I hear you talking about it a little bit as well. So I just want to go back to it, see if there's anything else about that relationship with your father that somehow may have set even more of a foundation to the story than what you've already shared yeah, I mean, there's so many layers to that conversation, and Michelle's right, that a lot of us, you know, that's our first experience of a sense that is later than connected to God the Father, you know, our experience of our own father. So if our fathers were absent or weren't there at all, surprise, surprise, we end up with a God who's distant and uninvolved and un- unknowable and unreachable mm. and watching from the infinite distance of a disapproving heart. A child does not have the capacity to not blame themselves when something is not right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And we do that. And then we project all of that on God. And it takes a long time and a lot of deconstruction and rebuilding for us to begin to find a basis for trusting a God who presents God's very self as a father. But, But I think part of our problem is that then we define the fatherhood of God based on our experience 
rather than looking at the experience of Jesus in relationship to the Father as a defining element of what fatherhood or parenthood actually means. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, did I get this right? That Did you say earlier or mean to imply when you said it took you 50 years to kind of unravel all of that? And I got the impression from something you said earlier that you probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I heard was you probably wouldn't have been able to write the shack any earlier than you did just because of the stuff that you had to go through. Is that right? That is correct. I'm, people ask me how long it took to write the shack. I tell them 50 years. Yeah. And then, and then I say, well, six months once I, you know, once I put pen to paper, but but yes, there's no way, right? And when people read the book, they know implicitly that whoever wrote this has gone through stuff. You really can't write this just out of your head. This is, a, and I think this is why the book has had such an impact in the planet because it is a whole person story. It is not just a head, you know, some argument for some nonfiction. This is a relational reality. The questions are real, the losses are real. We all face this stuff and we all want to ask these questions. But a lot of us, especially those in the religious community, have not had a safe place to do it. And the book gave people a language. Mm. It really did to have a conversation about God that wasn't religious. It was relational. Yeah. Well, I find that so encouraging, Paul, because for many of us, the story isn't done. And we we sometimes want to bring something out into the world that isn't quite ready yet. It isn't fully incubated in our own lives for us to put out there what God is intending for us to put out. So I really like what you're saying there. And the other thing too, is that, you know, of any of this notoriety platform stuff, which is all smoke and mirrors, as far as I'm concerned, part of the cross that you have to bear sometimes. But if that had happened to me in my thirties or early forties, it would have killed me. Uh I mean, I did not have the health or the capacity or the sense of, of knowing myself and being comfortable inside my own skin let alone living in a trusting way inside my relationship with God, yeah. it would have destroyed me. Yeah. And uh, there's no question about it. My friends tell me the same thing all oh, the time. That's, that's <laughs> what <laughs> aspect of it would have destroyed you? I'm kind of curious. Well, you know, when you don't know who you are, let, let's take just one of those things I mentioned is significance. If you don't know that you are significant because of who you are, if you think that you are significant from what you do, then you will suck significance out of what you do. Uh And so it's one of the ways that starts to destroy you. And as soon as you go down that path, then you're now in competition with anybody else who does something similar or something in the same field, or, you know, you're now in comparing yourself and you're in competition with them. Mm-hmm. And and that's destructive. So every one of these identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love. If if you don't find those in terms of who you are and who God is to you, then you're going to try to get it out of something. You're going to look to the ground and the works of your hands or you're going to mm-hmm. try to get it out of a relationship and you're going to end up using people to, to fill the emptiness that you feel because you haven't you haven't faced it. You haven't dealt with your own stuff. You might, Mackenzie's weekend in the shack, that weekend represents 11 years for me. Uh-huh. It, you know, that we're not talking about a quick fix event. We're too incredibly crafted as human beings for quick fixes. Right. Only God who knows how we're wound is able to unwind us in a way that doesn't hurt us. Was there a specific loss that you came back to as you were trying to write his character? Mm, well, my relationship with my dad, which is 
which is all over the book, right? Yeah. And both in terms of of the damage of it and also in the hope of reconciliation for it. Mm. And that's partly, you know, uh, when Papa comes through the door, Papa doesn't come as Gandalf with a really bad attitude, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because that's the God that I grew up with. And I I do not want my children trying to build a relationship with with that God, the one that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. Gandalf the angry. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I used imagery that is way outside of that box. And also because I think most of the damage in the world comes from men. And Michelle is right that a lot of times we've been so hurt by men on this planet that how are we supposed to bridge into a relationship with a God who is presented to us as a father or as a man. And we know Orthodox theology that God is neither male nor female, or I think more accurately express it, that all of maternity and all of paternity originate in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And that's Orthodox theology. Yeah, We're made in the image of God, but it kind of messes with people's minds because, you know, it just does. Yeah. You you mentioned earlier that you, you know, you needed this time to kind of develop your character before you're really ready to put this book out there. And you certainly have seen a lot of success with the book and also quite a bit of criticism that's come as a result of that. It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm guessing that from what you've said, you probably would have fallen apart on the way to that criticism as a younger man. No if- doubt about it. No doubt about it. Because I, I you know, when I was in my, uh, a young teenager, I actually was very proficient piano player, pianist. And if anybody knows the Royal Conservatory of Music ladder, I was 10th grade when I was like 13 years old, which is a teaching level. And I would do these concerts. Two years in a row, I came in second, where the prize was like a Juilliard bull ride kind of scholarship thing. And I came in second. But after those events, I'd literally be throwing up for a week And a lot of us know what it's like where you're in a situation and 99 people come through and say, that was the bomb. That was so great. And you got one person that comes through and says, well, I I thought it was horrible. Didn't like it. Mm. So where do you camp at that point? You know, one, if you know who you are, then then you say thank you to all the responses. Mm-hmm. And and you're not sucked into thinking like you're all that in a bag of chips, as my father-in-law would say, <laughs> but you're not crushed by someone who is bringing their stuff to the table. So when people are upset with what I write, the only time that it's gotten really difficult is when people have come after my kids. And frankly, that's been Christians without exception. Why is it that we do that? <laughs> yeah, what do you mean they come after your kids? How did they come after your kids? Oh, they removed lifelong relationships that that their kids had with our kids because they didn't want their kids contaminated by being around our kids. They would bring them in front of a group of people and ask them questions that they didn't have the capacity to answer theologically or other ways, shame them, you know? A couple of my kids, one in particular, I mean, really was hurt, you know? So you've got to work that out. You got Mm -hmm. to deal with the forgiveness side. And, but overall, when people are upset, I know they're not coming to tell me about me. Because I already know who I am. Hmm. And so they're coming to tell me in the only language they know how about what matters to them and what scares them and what makes them angry. And if I'm not at risk in that conversation, then we're not going to have a war. We're going to have the possibility of an actual dialogue, something that might might matter. And it may be that the response that 
is the right response in that moment is silence or, you know, just reach in and touch noses with them. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it's part of the beauty. People are the way they are for a reason. And everybody was once a child. And when you when you begin to relate to people that way and you're not at risk yourself, all kinds of beautiful, miraculous things happen. Wow. Has there been a I don't know how to ask this. Has there been like a a, a singular or or a large or a more prominent? Let me put it that way. Has there been a more prominent criticism that that's just a misunderstanding that you'd like to just if you could just wipe out? Ah, so <laughs> let's see. There's a couple of them. I get accused of being a universalist all the time, which is really, <laughs> really, really funny. And and a lot of people don't have a clue what they mean when they when, when they, they say they, that. Like, yeah, exactly. It, it's just a bad thing. So don't be it. it exactly. <laughs> yeah, we can't we, we can't have the idea that God actually loves everybody like that, you know. Huh. So I have to clarify that question quite a bit. And I'll go like, you know, so I always ask people, what do you mean by that? What are you asking about? And and it sort of has a whole bunch of different understandings and people will bring the one that they're, they're concerned about. One of them is you believe that all roads lead to God, right? That's one. And what's funny is, and this is the power of a paradigm. Mm. A paradigm is like the glasses through which you see the world. And a lot of us have got mud on them and are the, even the prescriptions are wrong. And I think the work of the Holy Spirit is over time to change our prescriptions and clear them up so that we can actually see with some clarity. But people will read the shack and I put in a little section just because of this kind of accusation. And it's where Mackenzie says to Jesus, so do all roads lead to Papa, which is that question. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus laughs and he says, no, most roads don't lead anywhere, but I will go down any road to find you. Yeah. Oh man, I love and I, that. And I love that line because mm-hmm. it's the incarnation. This is the shepherd who leaves the yes. 99 to go find the one, the woman who loses the coin the, and searches oh. the house, or the father who's waiting for the son. So, But people will read that and then interpret it to say, well, Paul believes that all roads <laughs> lead to God. And it's like, it actually says exactly the opposite <laughs> of that. But that's the power of the paradigm. And it, yeah. and it says something else, too. It says God is the one that's taking the action to reach out and love us, and it's not built on works and, and what we do to earn that. I, how, how do we define lost? Yeah. You know, unless we define it as lost. <laughs> and people will also say, you know, but do you believe that Jesus' atonement is effective for all humanity? And if that's what you mean by universalist, I'm in. But I'm in really good company. I'm like in with Athanasius and Irenaeus and the early church fathers and throughout history, the theologians who said that, you know, to quote Corinthians, when he died, we all died. When he rose, we rose. Mm -hmm. And so the work of salvation has been absolutely completed by Jesus, not of our works. And so if that's universalism, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty. Do I think that everyone ultimately will be restored face to face with God? That's another definition of universalism. And I say, I hope so. But I don't believe that as a doctrine. So, I mean, I hope that God, prior to creation, planned a way without the violation of one human will to win every single human being back to -to face-to-face love and relationship. I hope that's true. There's scripture that holds the tension between that and your ability to say no is so highly valued that potentially you could say no forever. I don't think that death is the definer of relationship with God. I think Jesus is. 
And we're going to all have to deal with that. And it's that tension, your ability to say no to a God that will go down any street for you. I think that's how you defined hell in your new book. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I did something very simple in, in lies as far as hell, because, I mean, it's a huge conversation, as you know, mm-hmm. and it's a historic one. I made this very simple. I, I just laid it out very simply. I said, either hell is a created thing or an uncreated thing. And I don't think anybody can find a third category. <laughs> you know, It's either created or uncreated. And the argument basically is, look, if it is uncreated, then it is God because God is the only uncreated, mm. right? So it is the very presence of love that, and this is George MacDonald, who was the one who led C.S. Lewis into a relationship deeper with Jesus. And George MacDonald was a pastor who wrote adult fantasy books like Fantasties, which is the book that Lewis turned Lewis toward Jesus. And MacDonald wrote Unspoken Sermons, Creation and Christ, and in it he says, look, God is not going to stand by and allow anything that is not of love's kind to be unchallenged. And if you trust the goodness of this God, you will run to him with your arms wide open and say, please judge me to the core and burn out of me everything that keeps me from being fully human and fully alive. I said, so if it's uncreated, if hell is uncreated, it is the presence of God. All the prisons that we have in our lives, all the darkness will not be comfortable in the presence of love and light, and we're going to have to deal with it. If it is, if it is created, then I go to Romans, and it's got a list of all the things that cannot separate me from the love of God. And in that list is anything present, anything future, and any created thing. So whatever this is, which to me, hell is experienced both here and in the next ages because we don't let go of our stuff. Mm. But whatever it is, it can't separate us from the love of God. It's not separation. And for me, religion is fundamentally based on the idea of separation, but it doesn't exist in scripture and it doesn't exist in the heart of God. Paul, can I share something with you? Absolutely. I would love that. First of all, it drives me nuts how often I see criticism about this book or your theology. And I know I'm supposed to be asking you questions here, but I'm I'm just going to make a statement here. (laughs) Your book was one of the first Christian books I ever read cover to cover. Your book found me at a time when I was just first entering into the world of Christendom, just left the world of organized crime. I'm extremely angry, bitter, and I'm trying to understand something that for me was so illogical that made no sense that it it was hard for me to grasp, and that was the Trinity. Mm. And until I read your book... I did not know how to make sense of something so illogical. And I read your book, and after reading it, it was one of the first times it allowed me to be able to have a relationship with God that holistically grabbed my heart, mind, body, soul, and spirit. So I just want you to know that your book had such an impact on someone who was violent, angry, bitter, and so much worse that it 
it, it was a big part of me. And I, I don't even know if this is even an accurate term to use, but I felt like I was baptized in love after reading your book mm-hmm. because it was the first time I embraced God as a father, as a nurturer, as a brother, as just a holistic experience, as a holistic relationship. And it wrecked me in the best way possible. Mm. How beautiful is that? Come on, Holy Spirit, thank you. We will have more of that, please. <laughs> you know, because and and here's the beauty too. I didn't know what I was doing. I was writing something for my kids. I'm saying to my kids, let me tell you about the God who actually showed up and healed my heart. And that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And and it's it's like, come on. You know, I get these emails and my family that not my immediate family, but my Christian family, and they're saying things like. I'm I'm scared to take the risk that God is as good as you say, mm. and you're wrong. And I'm like, well, one, you want to spend eternity with the God that you have in your imagination that you're afraid of? I mean, how crazy it is that this God who is love, who by nature loves, we end up in a fear relationship, and you're afraid that that he just might be that good, but maybe he won't be. And, and I'm saying, look, I just wrote God as good as I know how, and I know I only scratched the surface. Yeah. Barely scratched the surface. Yeah. And you know what? Stories like yours, they're such an affirmation to the message. I, the guy that I relate most to in the New Testament is the man born blind. You know? He's, he's sitting on the side of the road, and Jesus comes by, and he doesn't even know who he is. And he ends up being the object of a Sunday school lesson, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and suddenly he hears somebody spit in the ground and rubs it in his eye sockets because the, the sense of that whole passage is that he didn't even have eyes because when he later could see people were wondering if it was really him because he looked so different. And so it was a creative act and he doesn't even know who he is. And then Jesus just leaves. And this guy is suddenly in the midst of all this religious stuff, right? And when it comes to the bottom line, he says, look, he's uneducated. He is an outcast because he's got a physical disease. You know, he's got no eyes. And now all the big theological teachers and all that want to want to accuse him of his experience. And bottom line, he says, you can say whatever you want. I was blind. I can see. Well, I, I'm, and you can't take that away. Yeah. From me. I can I can see. Yeah. And and you have everybody posturing. And so, I, I mean, I get hundreds, if not, I have thousands of of stories about how the shack has ended up in the middle of people's great sadnesses. And I get them all the time. And they're just these praises to God. Mm. I was talking in a conversation with God not that long ago going like, so how come this wasn't around and saved me 30 years? <laughs> right. <clears throat> and it's like, well, Somebody had to write it, you know? Oh, okay. And I'm thrilled to participate, but so, I'm so overwhelmed by how beautiful that is. You wrote the book for your kids, and it would have been a good book to send back to your former self, huh? Uh, no doubt about <laughs> it. You know, here's when I wrote it, the year I wrote it, I had basically two prayers left. I told you there was this big 11-year deconstruction, yeah. reconstruction journey, and I knew something had flipped over. The year I turned 50, which is the year of Jubilee, you know, it's the mm-hmm. year of of, hmm, well, that's a little tender. Um, it's the year of new beginnings, you know, where where all the debts are forgiven. Yeah. 
and and you just get a you get a do over in the best sense, mm. and uh, so and that's I I I was a child for the first time in my life, which was a huge indicator for me that something major had changed. I had no addictions left, and I had no secrets, and mm. I was the same person in every situation. Wow. And I had two basic prayers left, and the first one was, you know, Papa, I don't want to be an old man one day looking back at my life and wondering. You know what would it have been like to take the risk of trust? Oh, I said I don't want I don't want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. And and my second prayer is, you know, th- and for all of those who come from a religious background, you'll totally get what I what I meant. I said I am never going to ask you again to bless anything that I do, you know, because <laughs> because I've spent my whole life trying to get God to follow me around, you know, yeah. and and hey, I got this great idea for you, you know, <laughs> and and I really believe that God will will never leave us or forsake us. And so he always goes with us, but if it's our idea, he just won't do anything. Right. And give it your best shot sort of thing. And I said, I'll never, I'm never going to ask you again to bless anything that, that I do, but if you've got something you're blessing and it would be okay for me to be a part of it, I mean, I'd be all over it. And I don't care if I'm cleaning toilets, which was one of the jobs that I had when I wrote it. Hmm. And I don't, I don't care if I'm cleaning toilets or shining shoes or holding the doors open for other people. I just want to know at the end of the day, you did this and I got to participate. And when I hear your story, that's what I hear. You did this. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You did this and I got to participate. And, you know, in retrospect, it's almost as if God says, well, Paul, you know, how about if I bless this little story you're writing over here for your kids? I mean, you give it to your kids and then I'll give it to mine. Yeah, isn't that neat? And that's what's happened. Oh, that's great. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Hey, Armin, I'm super excited. Our friends at Great Waters Financial, a wealth management firm based here in Minneapolis with over $300 million in assets under management. They are our sponsors for this episode. I'm so glad they are because there's two financial institutions in this world that I would ever put my name behind, and Great Waters Financial is definitely one of them. You know, I have had the opportunity, Armin, to talk to about a dozen of their clients one-on-one. And they are not just clients. They are raving fans of Great Waters Financial. And why? Because they are treated like family. They're treated like somebody that they can trust to get the job done. And Great Waters makes it very simple to understand all the retirement complexities and financial plans that you might need to make. And they do it with uh, all the latest tools but they do it with a lot of heart. That's right. These guys are setting a new standard of how this is done. So if you want to schedule a time with your future advisor, then go to www.greatwatersfinancial.com forward slash bold idea. I have one probably last question that we're going to have to wrap it up, but I'm, I'm dying to ask you this because your book has had an impact on so many people as we've been talking about and how it's changed the way they see God. And I remember reading one time about C.S. Lewis when he wrote the screw tape letters, how it changed his thinking. And I'm just wondering, as you were writing the shack, what did you discover about God that you learned in doing that, that you perhaps didn't know going into it? Oh, so writing is an writing is an interesting journey because for me, it's like you jump in a river and you just like let the river take you. And there's all these tributaries, whether it's 
you know, conversations you've had with people or lyrics of songs or movies you've seen or books you've read or poetry or just the beauty of creation. All of these things kind of feed into it as you're being swept down the river. But you end up in territory sometimes that you don't you don't see coming. And that happened at different places in the book. For example, I wrote the bird. I mean, it flew in, in the book, flew into the kitchen in the movie. They're they're looking at it outside. But I wrote it in there and I didn't know why it was there. And I'm kind of going like it just flew in. Hmm. And then and then suddenly Papa turns and starts talking about the bird in a way that I had never heard it before. He says, you know, that bird is created to fly. You were created to be loved. And pain has a way of clipping our wings so that we forget we were ever created to fly. You know, there's this whole beautiful thing about about how God views us, but how we view ourselves that gets us so stuck. And it, it, it became this incredibly beautiful thing. And I sent the first manuscripts I sent to a bunch of my friends to read. And one of them is a friend of mine who is in Taiwan. And he read it, but he comes back to me and it's that scene that just wrecked him. It's like, ha. Huh. And then and then you get involved in conversations with people who read your stuff and they're getting stuff out of it that you didn't write. <laughs> you know? It is it is beautiful. And so that's why I always say, you know, conversations are two way. There's always something going on for me as well as for them inside inside of that some of it i did mean and some of it it's just like uh, i didn't even realize the depth to it wow. so i'm around theologians and they're going like look at this look what you did here and i'm going like i did oh i guess i did <laughs> that is so cool you know and some of it is really really deep and really profound and part of the creative process that that we get to participate in and and we don't even know how about how about making a child? You know, here you've got two human beings who are going to create together a being that will never cease to exist. And God submits to it. God climbs inside their choices for whatever their, however their choices and motivations are, whether you can say that they're sometimes evil and sometimes good or whatever. And yet God has such a high respect for us that God is going to join and give life to the choices that they make and put into being something that will outlive every book, every movie, everything that anybody can do creatively on this planet, this being that will live forever. That's me. That's you. Wow. How incredible is that? That's amazing. I need to sneak in one Go. more question. And it's Paul Young, so everyone can listen and still be happy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm going to make this personal again. I have resisted writing a book for so many years because of the analogy that you just gave of the bird, like the clip the wings, or the earlier that we're talking about your criticism or you being ready. And we have an audience of people who listen to this that either want to pursue a bold idea or in the midst of pursuing a bold idea. And every bold idea comes with so much resistance. It comes with so many barriers. It comes with so many obstacles that all you ever want to do is give up just to walk away from the criticism, the shame, the condemnation, the failure, the whatever it might be. And I just want to use you in this moment to speak to the people like me who are want to run away from what they feel like they should do or the people who are in the midst of already pursuing that idea or that calling and still want to run away from it. Would you just speak to us? Absolutely. I'll do it a couple different ways. One is to talk to you about the simplicity of living inside the grace of only one day at a time. 
We are not designed to be future trippers. <laughs> I love that. We, <laughs> we, we only get grace for one day. Oh. And it's when you start taking today's real grace and spending it on things that don't exist, mm. that you get into all kinds of fear-based anxiety. We, we create these incredible imaginations of failure you know, of every sort, relational and otherwise, that actually don't exist. We're designed to be the child, to live inside the grace of one day and deal with what's right in front of us. And then when you learn to do that, there will always be enough. Mm. And tomorrow you'll get grace for whatever tomorrow holds. Mm. Okay, the second thing, when the book started to take off, and I've only had this experience once in my life, and I'd be surprised if I ever had it again, uh, but I was I was sound asleep and I sleep well and then suddenly I woke up just stark awake at about two o'clock in the morning and Kim sound asleep next to me and I'm sitting and it's almost like it's a visual I've never heard God speak audibly or seen you know the visual things that some people do but it was like I I could almost see it but I I, I knew what it was I was under a waterfall of creative ideas just one after another, each one lasting for five to 10 minutes. And I'm just like, just totally inundated by this, feeling the emotions of each one. And then the thought comes probably about, I don't know, probably about an hour. I don't know why it took so long, because that's just not my style. I'm much more inclined to be to be like, Here, well, here's what happened. So about an hour into it, I the thought crosses my mind. I need to write this down. <laughs> or I forget. And and Im immediately the waterfall stopped. Oh. And I hear the voice on the inside, the voice of the spirit who says things to me that I don't say to myself, say, isn't that just like you? Right? <laughs> I mean, you you don't trust that this is a river. Oh. You don't trust that this is a river. You think that you need to dam it up and then put put it into little bottles that you can sell in exchange for identity and worth and value and significance and security and meaning and purpose and destiny and community and love. You don't believe that this is a river. Oh man. And it crushed me. I mean, I started sobbing and Kim's just out, you know? So I'm just like, and I said, I will never do that again. And immediately the waterfall started again. And for the next hour, I just laid under it and then fell asleep. And, and I've never tried to resurrect those ideas or anything, but they've started to show up in other people. And I recognize them when they do. But the point of it was, you got to trust that this is a river and then learn how to stay inside the grace of one day. You know, this is not about you working up enough perfect performance in order to get, you know, the status or the notoriety or the platform or something, because that's a shifting target. Let me tell you, if, if you think that success equals this, by the time you get there, it won't equal that anymore. And there's never enough. So we find that the opposite of more is enough and that enough is inside the grace of a day and relax. I mean, just, just relax. You know, if God is for you, who can, who can be against you? And sometimes that tension and the things that come up in our lives creatively, those things will help what we then express to the world to be even better and more beautiful than we had imagined when we first conceived them. Wow. Wow. 
Well, I, mean, I tell you, <laughs> we feel like you just wow. you just poured all that waterfall over us here as we're taking it in. I'm trying to like tears back. Hey, let's write that down and bottle it up, right? <laughs> yeah, right. We can oh, sell it to somebody. Yeah, right? somebody will buy that stuff. I'm oh. telling you, this was really a great time with you, Paul. You know, we're this is a longer episode, but worth every moment. And just so grateful again that you're willing to be part of the Bold Idea Podcast. Our listeners may want to know how they can find out more about you. Where do you live on the web? How can they get a hold of you? And then we're going to include all that in our show notes, but why don't you okay. go ahead and tell them? Yeah, just W.M. Paul Young. W.M. is William, and I'm one of four generations of Williams, none of who go by William. <laughs> we all go by our middle names. But And so on the first manuscript, it was a joke. You know, I put, I put William P. Young, and I'd get calls from people who are my friends, and they'd go like, have you read this book by this William Young? I mean, he, <laughs> he, he thinks like you. Yeah, so it sounds it, like it, you. <laughs> yeah, com, and that'll hook you to Twitter and Facebook and all that other kind of stuff. There's lots of stuff everywhere on YouTube and all that that you can watch if you want. Well, and, and uh, I've been reading some yeah. of your blog posts as well, and they're just really, really well done. And I've got to tell you, this book that's coming out, Lies We Believe About God, is it's masterful piece of work here, and you've got so many really poignant and pithy, but, but pointed thoughts. And I encourage our listeners to pick that book up as well. Thank you for that. You know, and it's not, it's not intended to be an answer to everything. It's intended to be part of the conversation that's emerging that we need to have. We just need to have a larger conversation so that we don't keep putting up all these walls and barriers and, and constructs that, that continue to divide us. Yes. And, Amen. Um, so, Amen, yeah. brother. Well, Paul, thanks again for being on our show. We're so honored to have you on and for you to take the time that you have to be with us. We're just so grateful. I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Thank you both. And if I may add, Paul, I just, I just want you to know how I much. love you, brother. You owe me a big hug. I, I, I wish <laughs> to God you were here because you, you, you deserve hugs. But I just well, want you to know this world needs you and you pursuing your bold idea has not just impacted my life, but the life of so many people that I know. I don't think thank you is enough, but I, for whatever it's worth, I just want you to know that there are many people in this world that are grateful that you were willing to go beyond your obstacles, your challenges, and pursue the call that God had on your life because it has impacted so many people. So I don't want this to be a thank you because it's a outro of a podcast, but I just want this to be a thank you that I hope it can resonate in your heart for years to come because you have been that impactful to so many people. So thank you. You're welcome. And it blesses me to the core of my being. And you know what's beautiful? It doesn't come with any responsibility. I just get, I get to be the child who lives in the grace of the day and respond to what's in front of me in the affection, the relentless affection of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're all designed that way. Yeah. How cool that I didn't have to wait till I died to experience it. <laughs> like, like my theology told me growing up. You know? uh, I love that. I don't have to, I didn't have to wait till I die to experience it. Well, again, thanks for not only what you've done, but for being on the show as well. And we just do genuinely appreciate you being here. Thanks, Paul. Blessings rich and full of grace. Whew. Well, I mean, that was Paul Young and, there's a lot of stuff in this episode to unpack. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't even know where to start. There's so much meat in this that I I spent days and hours processing this because it was that impactful. And there's so much to take away from. Where did you 
want to start even because I don't know where to start. Well, I took a lot of notes as I even listened to this episode again, knowing that there were a lot of, as he used the word tributaries, there's a lot of tributaries (laughs) of takeaways for a bold idea. But one of the ones that kind of came to me, it wasn't explicitly said, but it occurred to me, I love the genesis of how he ended up writing The Shack. Of course, we all know him because of The Shack and that work, but he wrote it simply to satisfy a desire his wife had to pass some information on to his kids. And as I thought about that, the the concept for me is that a bold idea may simply begin as a ministry to our own family. You know, it doesn't oh, need wow. to be this thing that's big. Right. And, and oftentimes when I think about a bold idea, I think about something big and enormous and changes the world. Dante. And here's a guy who wasn't setting out to change anything except to pass on some thinking about God to his kids so they didn't have to repeat or have the same conception of God mm. that he had growing up. He wanted to offer a different conception of God than the Gandalf, the angry right. Gandalf conception, <laughs> right. you know? Right. And and he was just satisfied with only, you know, writing and distributing 15 copies of it. He said that was yeah. it. That was I was it accomplished I, its and goal. that's accomplished his purpose. Yeah. And everything else was a bonus. Everything else was a bonus. And that's how it seems like he's living his life, that everything is just pretty much a bonus and he gets to right. enjoy the day and the grace of the day. And I just love that attitude. I love that. That's a point I didn't even catch. That's what I love about this interview is that there's probably 20 points that I missed, even though I captured like eight of them. One of the other pieces that really stuck out to me is when he started talking about significance, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when he started talking about if you don't know that you are significant because of who you are, and you think you are significant from what you do, then you will suck significance from all the things that you end up doing. I love that. I love it because it's convicting. I love it because it's accurate. I love it because that's what I do. I have a performance mentality. I do feel more often than not, if I'm not performing to a certain standard, that I have no significance and I feel Mm. like a failure. Mm. And I start questioning my call. I start questioning my relationship with God. I start questioning who I am. And it diminishes the value of my relationships and who I am on a daily basis. Yeah, that's good. We often can judge the rightness of our bold idea about how it makes us feel about ourselves. And that's what you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh man, he got me to my core. But anyway, what was another thing for you? Well, just to follow up on that, because I think this ties into that nicely, is that, you know, he said he needed to incubate. He wasn't ready to do, his character wasn't ready to be what it was. Come on. Right? And and that it took until he was 50, and it took 11 years to process the pain of his dad. And the story of the shack really is to reimagine who God is different than what he grew up knowing God to be. And I wonder if that isn't also the thing that God did with Abraham. Right. And God did with with Moses and God did with Paul in the wilderness, you know, before he went into ministry is to say, we're going to change your conception of who I am mm-hmm. from what you thought I was. And we're going to give you time to mature so that you can handle what's going to come. Right. And clearly he had no idea what was going to come. Right. Especially if you're an achiever, if you have this achiever mentality where you want to succeed, your prayer more often than not, especially for me, right? I'm, I'll just talk about me. I pray for that significance. I pray for that success. And every time God doesn't answer that prayer, I feel like I have an issue with God or I suck at life or whatever right. it is, where maybe he's not answering that prayer because he's actually protecting me from my own devastation. Amen. 
Come Amen. on. Now that's a God that would love. Right. And that's I think what he's he's describing in his writings and even in our conversation here is that God's the kind of God that would would love us enough to say, You're not quite ready yet. Yeah. And we would rail against that. In fact, he called it future trippers. Yeah. You know, we think about the future and we want to, you know, get out there when God's just saying, Hey, just just live with the grace that we have in the moment. And I have a note on my monitor that says plow the ground that's in front of you you know because i often tend to be a future tripper like he was talking about like where's this going in 10 years and god's saying you know i don't need you to worry about 10 years i need you to worry about just today yeah and not even worry about it just enjoy it and 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 do what you're supposed to do all right here's my last it's not my last i have what's your big takeaway but my one more big takeaway is that moment he's describing him talking paul talking to god and saying to God, so how come this book wasn't around and saved me 30 years? And I love what he said. God responded to him. He said, God responded and said, well, somebody had to write it. Mm. And here's, here, here's the takeaway from that is I, I love how simply he breaks it down in a way that says that you see a man who has been violently beat and abused sexually abused and gone through rejection, abandonment, identity issues, and whatever comes along with that, right? Where uh, often it takes people to the point where they say life isn't worth living. But you see this man turn this moment and turn this pain and turns it to God and God uses the greatest pain and the greatest challenges of his life to create the greatest blessing of his life. Mm-hmm. And not that he went through the pain for the hope of the blessing, right? He just persevered and the outcome was this blessing. Yep. It transformed not just his life, his family's life, but I mean, all over the world, 22 million copies tens of thousands of testimonies that has come from it. One of them being mine, as you heard earlier. Yeah. But here's my takeaway as, as I know he gets ridiculed a lot of times for being called a dangerous Christian because, he's, got da- yeah, because he's a dangerous theology. And I'm not going to say I even agree with all his theology, right? It's it, But it's a fiction book, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to throw that out there. But what I find most dangerous about Paul is that he is the type of guy that's going to raise up and inspire dangerous Christians because he's showing us through his life and through his relationship with God that rather than praying the prayer that says, Lord, save me from this pain, it changes the prayer and we start praying, Lord, use mm-hmm. the pain. Mm-hmm. Where he said, Lord, feed me. You say, no, no, Lord, make me hungry. Lord, make me thirst. I, I love that he's taking us into a mentality. And I think that are, or those are the most dangerous Christians when they say, yeah, I'm going to go through my pain, but God use my pain. Yeah. That's good. right. Like, I love that. I, I think that's inspirational to me. Where that's I, good. I, I just laugh. I want to laugh in the face of my pain. Yeah. That's good. So I don't know. Where do you take this? <laughs> uh, you know, like I said, there's so many tributaries, but if I bubbled this up, and took a look at the interview from kind of a 30,000-foot view. And having read The Shack and The Lies We Believe About God, his new book, I'll tell you, Armin, the big takeaway that I have here is just I appreciate that he made me think. (laughs) Now, I don't agree with all the theology or whatever, and there's some of it that I'm still uncertain about. But the thing that I know is that he made me think, and I know it's so easy to get lazy in our thinking, right? And that we just accept what we 
believe without knowing why we believe it. And that produces defensiveness. So when somebody challenges our thinking, our deeply held belief about something that's so easy to believe, and we surround ourselves with other people that believe the same thing we do, then we get uncomfortable if it gets challenged. And then it's so easy to just throw out categories. Like he says, you know, we start naming people, we start doing things, we attack their kids, you know, and say, you know, mean things. But what I appreciate is that he called some things into question. I mean, he, he, his writing is paradigm shifting or paradigm busting, and mm-hmm. he's calling some things into question. And I sincerely appreciate that it sharpens my thinking when I read it. And I enjoyed hearing his spirit that I believe that he is genuinely receptive to people who totally. have different points of view from his as well without reciprocating with condemnation or sure. discomfort or anything. He's basically right. saying, hey, you know, thank you. You know, yeah. he's he made that comment, you know, when you face criticism or you face praise, you know, where do you decide to camp? Are you going to camp on the 99 who criticized or 99 who praised you or the one who criticized you? Yeah. And I often camp on the criticism, yeah, right? Of course. <laughs> and, and and yet he says that his answer is just say thank you. Yep. I just love that. It's a beautiful thing. I do love it. He is one of the most tender, compassionate, grace-filled men I've ever had the honor of interviewing. And I, I can say, regardless of theology, at the essence of what he writes is love, and that's what's important to me. Yeah, I'm in. Well, that's a good place to leave this. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. We know it was extra long, but we hope you got a lot from it, and we'd love to get your comments on this show. Simply go to boldideapodcast.com slash 10, because this is episode 10, and leave us a comment there or call our show line at 612-568-IDEA. That's 612-568-4332. We'd love to hear from you. Let's get a conversation going. All the links that we talked about to Paul's website and all the rest will be on our show notes found at boldideapodcast.com slash 10. So that's it for this episode. Until next week, this is Larry Gates and Armin Asadi saying so long. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.